Last night I had an opportunity to share, at, she has a name, uh, Night of Jubilee. It probably could have been called Night of Prayer, actually, more appropriately, because we spent the majority of this night praying to God. And it was a beautiful display of believers across the city joining together on their knees. And not just to talk about a problem, in this case the problem of human trafficking in our city, but to address God with this problem. And I was asked by She Has a Name to give a few thoughts on prayer to set the stage for our time of prayer. And so I've been thinking a lot about prayer, and in particular the difference between what Jack Miller called maintenance prayer and frontline prayer. Okay, so maintenance prayer is important. It's like the immediate needs in our family. It's the immediate needs in our church family. But if that is all that we are doing, doing maintenance with God in our prayer life, then we are missing out on what so much of the scriptures say about prayer and so much about what the scriptures model in their prayers. And so frontline prayer, on the other hand, is prayer that moves beyond the concentric circles of my heart and my life and my family and my church family. Frontline prayer moves out of those concentric circles. And last night, we prayed frontline prayers against injustice. And we prayed frontline prayers against this huge, huge problem. This insurmountable, yet impossible problem of modern day slavery and trafficking. So what I want to do is I want to press pause this Sunday on 1 Corinthians. If you've been with us, you know that we're walking chapter by chapter through this letter. We're going to press pause on that just this Sunday to continue those thoughts on prayer with you all. I mean, not all of us here are involved in fighting human trafficking in our city, but all of us are called to frontline prayer. So would you join me um, in praying before we begin and explore this together? Lord, would the words of my mouth, would the meditation of all of our hearts here together be pleasing and acceptable to you? You are our rock and our redeemer. And as redeemer, you have united all of us uh, whose trust is in Jesus to your son, Jesus. And so we are acceptable in your sight. Because of his work. And so then would we see him and him clearly this morning as we hear from your word. And we pray this in Jesus name. Amen. So I've noticed over the years that whenever our nation is confronted with a massive evil. We take to Twitter and Facebook to air it out. Which totally makes sense because we're community shaped. I mean, God made us in his image. And so we are made to be in relationship. And if we're isolated and we're sort of living alone, which many of us are doing, we're living uh, lives without community, without some kind of a place to go. It makes total sense that when something tragic happens, when something horrible happens, we take to the online community and we sort of have a community reaction together. And I've noticed also that in these forums, there are basically two reactions. There's Hashtag prayer and hashtag I don't need your prayer. Do you know what I mean? You have those who offer prayers and then we have those who are offended by prayer. 
and they're offended by prayer because the issue or the tragedy or whatever it is that we are reacting to seems too big for our prayers. It almost feels like an insult. Isn't what matters in those moments not our prayers, but our actions? And so for every hashtag prayers for, you will see ten or more reactions. Hashtag we don't need your prayers. And if I'm going to be totally honest with you, even though I'm a pastor, even though I believe in the privilege and the power of prayer, prayer avails. I often find myself relating to that second group. Just being totally honest. I'm not saying it's a right reaction, but I'm just being honest about the state of my heart. Because in the face of, of, of terrible things, let's say injustice, in the face of impossible brokenness, whether it's on the world stage or perhaps even in our lives, impossible brokenness. Like, What do you think of when you hear that phrase, impossible brokenness? Prayer can feel like it's futile. Ineffective. And so I wonder if you can relay. I mean, do you sometimes wonder if prayer matters when it comes to injustice? Does prayer matter when it comes to the brokenness in our communities or in our lives? I mean, when we really open our eyes up to the issue, when we wake up to the issue, the reality of what is going on, that is all that's broken, when we stop minimizing and ignoring the brokenness, isn't it only our actions that matter and not our prayers? I mean, that's my struggle. Doesn't prayer sometimes feel like spitting against a hurricane? That's my struggle. I have a friend who... Recently has been waking up to harsh realities of poverty right outside his work office. And in those moments, prayer seems like the last thing to do. Isn't it more important to actually do something? Prayer can wait. If you've ever asked this question, if you've ever wrestled with this tension that I'm describing, why pray? Then what I want to do is I want to let you in on how I've worked this out in my own prayer life. Why pray? Well, first, prayer embodies our helplessness. Prayer embodies our helplessness. So we might say in our minds, we might confess with our lips that we are helpless or unable to change our lives and to change other people's lives. Right? That's, that's like sort of a doctrine of inability. We might say and confirm or affirm that doctrine in our minds. But it isn't until we get on our knees and say help that we actually believe that. Do you see what I mean? Prayer is an embodiment of what we confess about our helplessness. The first reason we pray in the face of impossible brokenness is because fixing the brokenness in this world is indeed impossible. And so prayer is an embodiment, it's a confession of that reality, simply. So Proverbs 4.23, I'll just read it aloud. It says, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. And so the image here is that of a stream or a river, okay? Our life is like a river. And God is saying something very important about human nature this morning in that verse. What God is saying is that He designed our lives so that our actions are downstream from our heart. 
This means we may believe with our minds that we are helpless to change ourselves in the city. But until we actually say help, we don't actually believe it. Prayer embodies that. And so Psalm 44, which I ask you to turn to, if you go to uh, chapter 44 and look at verse 23 and following, we see an embodiment of helplessness. The psalmist writes, Awake, why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Verse 24, Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust, our belly so low that our belly clings to the ground. So rise up, God, and come to our help. Redeem us, rescue us, save us for the sake of your steadfast love. And so here's the point. We don't actually believe that we're helpless until we, with this psalmist, say, Help! When we have dust on our bellies and we're simply out of resources. Most of my early ministry, when people would ask to help me, I still struggle with this. But when people would ask to help me, I would say, no, I no, I have this. I'm good. No, I'm good. No, I'm good. And it looked really humble Looked like a good work ethic. But to be truthful, it's just a hundred proof pride. No, I got this. Truth is, I don't have it. I don't have it. I mean, are you overwhelmed with the brokenness that you see? Not just in your life, but in the world. When you turn on the news, when you check your Twitter feed, are you just overwhelmed? I mean, what are your coping mechanisms for that? Are you overwhelmed? Well, the place to start, I'm just telling you, is with the psalmist. And it's with a prayer. And the prayer is help. The place to start is an embodied helplessness, which is prayer. I mean, Alcoholics Anonymous can teach us something here. They, they know from hard experience that nothing will chew a person up more than the lie that we can change ourselves and that we can change others. This is why Bethany Hong writes, seeking justice doesn't begin at the door of a brothel. Seeking justice begins with seeking the God of justice. In prayer. So she worked for international justice and continues to work for international justice mission. And she experiences firsthand the difference between what she calls a, this is so appropriate, a soul crushing weariness and a joy filled tiredness. Wow. The soul crushing weariness that she experiences is always a result of. Of taking matters into her own hands. A joy-filled tiredness comes from seeking the God of justice first. It's an admission of our helplessness. When we stop appealing to God for whatever we're dealing with, who alone can change whatever we're dealing with, taking matters into our own hands will not only chew us up, but it's a fist. At God, it's saying, I've got this. 
I've got this. The second reason I think we can pray, and we ought to pray, even if you struggle with this tension of being overwhelmed, is because prayer alone can voice lament. Prayer alone can voice lament. I am so happy (laughs) that I had mentors in my life that told me about lament and pointed me to the scriptures on what lament is. Because in my experience, the more I get to know folks who grew up in the church, the more I get to see churches, lament is a foreign concept. But lament is a unique gift given to God's people. And some would steal this gift from you by forcing you to choose between a false choice, choice number one, a sort of naive, shallow happiness that ignores or minimizes the pain in your own life and in the life around you, or a God-denying despair. They would steal the gift of lament away from you by choosing you, by forcing you to pick one of those. And if you feel, even express, the, 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 the difficulty of what's going on in your life, or the injustices that you see in your life, then they would force you all the way over here into a God-denying despair. And who wants to do that? So we walk over here and we minimize or ignore the issues. Well, God gives us a third way. It's called lament. It's called lament. Psalm 44, the verses that we heard read, describe it. I mean, if you were to open your Bible, chances are you will run into a lament. We have a book of the Bible called Lamentations. God invites our lament. We'll just read the verses we already read again. Wake up, O Lord. And just think about this. If anybody prayed this prayer at a prayer meeting and you didn't cite chapter and verse, you might run the risk of getting rebuked. How dare you pray this to God? Wake up, O Lord. Why do you sleep? They would stop and they'd be like, no, you can't pray that. Don't you know God never slumbers? Oh, I'm sorry. And you step right over here. The psalmist says, wake up, Lord. Why do you sleep? Get up. Do not reject us forever. Why do you look the other way? Why do you ignore our suffering and oppression. We collapse in the dust. We, we're lying face down in the dirt. Rise up and help us and ransom us. And then they appeal on the basis of the promises of God because of your unfailing love, your chesed love, your unremitting love, your I will never, ever, ever go against my word love. I've been to a worship service where the worship leader was only smiling. Now, I can't do that. I don't think I can do that physically. Uh, but it's a thing. Okay? The permagrin in church is a thing. And everybody knew it was a professional smile. Everybody knew it. That's a professional smile. And my friend next to me leaned over and, and, he sa- and he said, this reminds me of a question that a theologian named Carl Truman once asked. What can miserable Christians sing? We have plenty of songs that happy Christians can sing. But what can miserable Christians sing? We have plenty of prayers that happy Christians can pray. But what can miserable Christians pray? The answer is lament. Lament. 
so I would encourage you on the basis of Psalm 44 verses 23 and following to get brutally honest with God. Tremper Longman calls lament getting brutally honest with God. And I'm convinced that more friends of mine have left the church, left the faith, not because of their intellectual doubts. No, they had satisfactory intellectual answers to all of the intellectual problems that we might face in our world. No, no, not because of that, but because a church culture stole the gift of lament from them. Please get honest with God. God is not embarrassed by your emotions. I mean, Jesus himself wept. His stomach twisted in the face of injustice. And so if you don't know how to pray in the face of impossibilities, impossible injustices, impossible difficulties, I would just encourage you to start right here. You know, we asked God help. We can ask God to wake up. You are allowed to say to God, I know you never slumber. I know your Hesed promises will follow through. But right now, I am struggling. I think there's a third reason we can pray in the face of impossibilities, and that is because prayer is our deepest expression of hope. It expresses hope. And if you've been around this long enough, you know that hope is not a wish. You know, that's what we think of. You know, many of us might say, I hope UVA wins. Amen. Anybody? I hope UVA wins. Right. And we say that we use that word hope because we we, we really don't know if it's going to happen. Maybe we even doubt that it's going to happen, but it's our desire. It's our wish. And many of us transport that idea onto the Bible. And frankly, that is a foreign concept to the idea of hope in the Bible. The idea of hope in the Bible is a steadfast sureness. It's like when you're going somewhere, you know the place exists. That is a hope. You know it exists. Like we went on spring break to Fort Myers Beach, Florida. I know Fort Myers Beach, Florida exists. And so my hope was Fort Myers Beach, Florida. It's there. In the process in getting there, I express my hope. It's exactly what happens in the scriptures time and time and time again. Is that we have a resurrection hope because Jesus was raised from the dead. And he gave us the Holy Spirit as a foretaste of that. As a promise of that. And because of the eyewitnesses of the resurrection, we know. We know that that's our destination. And we know that when he raises we and he returns, we also will be raised. We just sang about it this morning. That's our hope. That's a sure and steady destination. And so what we do in the meantime as we pilgrimage to that is we pray. We have a whole swath of the Psalms that are called prayers of ascent. Why? Because as they were walking to Jerusalem, they would pray about this hope. And that's our posture too. I mean, think about it. Saying in Jesus' name at the end of our prayer is more than just a closer, but we treat it that way. Praying in Jesus' name is a trust uh, that Jesus is going to right all wrongs. 
when he brings his kingdom to bear. Amen? When you say in Jesus' name, you are praying with hope. You're not just shooting your, your prayers into the sky or, and they bounce off the ceiling. No, no, no. You're praying to Jesus who is alive, who, is, who has scars on His hand, who is resurrected in body form, who has promised to return and to right all wrongs. I know things feel impossible. I know they do. Whatever you're wrestling with, it feels utterly futile to pray. When you pray, even for change, and yes, prayer do avail change. Even when you pray that prayer, you are praying with a sure and steady hope that he will right all wrongs. So Matthew 6, Jesus taught his disciples how to pray. This should be familiar to many of you. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And I want you to catch these, these, this prayer that Jesus tells us to pray. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation. And no, Jesus does not turn his eyes against real evil. Okay, He does not minimize true evil. He faces it squarely and he says, pray this, deliver us from evil. So I want you to notice that in this prayer is an expression of hope. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That there will be a day... That the future kingdom will be in its full. When, when heaven and earth kiss. When all that is broken about our world. When all the injustices that go unaddressed in this world get fixed. And the Lord of the Rings. And this is a major spoiler alert. So plug your ears. The ring is destroyed. I'm sorry. The ship sinks, right? Jack dies. Okay. Um, it's the 10-year rule. If, if 10 years have passed, you're allowed to spoil it. And at that moment that the ring is destroyed in Mount Doom, Sam Gamgee wakes up to two major surprises. Number one, the face of Gandalf. And number two, that he's alive. And the first thing that he says is a question. He says, is everything sad going to become untrue? What's happened to the world? He's asked. Theologian Michael Kruger says, this statement by Sam Gamgee is quite profound. And it is. Because it's different from asking whether good things are going to come true. Rather, it's asking whether sad things are going to come untrue. Prayer is an expression of hope, but it's a realistic hope because it does not deny or minimize sadness. It actually embraces the sadness, but it's also a hope that God will make it untrue. Your kingdom come and your will be done in Grandview Heights as it is in heaven in Upper Arlington as it is in heaven. In Worthington as it is in heaven. In Columbus as it is in heaven. It's a hope-filled prayer. And it's a realistic hope. Hope in the Bible is always realistic. Historians tell us that in Jesus' day, you basically had three options to confront evil. You had these groups, the Sadducees and the Essenes and the Pharisees. 
And each of them sort of embodied a sort of approach to, to brokenness and evil and injustice. And so the Sadducees tended to minimize it. And the Essenes tended to wallow in it. And the Pharisees, with sort of a self-righteous zeal, fought against it. They're like, oh, we'll go toe-to-toe with evil. You just watch. Well, Jesus comes in and He offers this prayer. And what He does is He offers a different way. He says, recognize evil and then confront it with my victory. One theologian says that when you pray this prayer, when you actually pray the words, deliver us from evil, you are inhaling the victory that he had on the cross. Jesus' death and his resurrection is proof of two things. Number one, evil and sin, our own sin, the sins against us, the sins that we've sinned against others are very, very real. And number two, that evil, sin, yes, even our sin and death do not win. Todd Billings, who lives with terminal cancer, writes, as we come to sense our role in this drama... We find that it is a path of lament and rejoicing, protest and praise. Rooted, though, in the trust of the triune God, the central actor, we can walk on this path even while the fog is thick, for God is bigger than cancer. He can say that with terminal cancer. And God is bigger than death. Why pray when it feels pointless? Well, it embodies our helplessness, friends. It, 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 it voices our lament and it expresses our hope. And so I would just encourage you to start today. And prayer, I see many varieties of prayer and what prayer can look like in God's Word. One of them is just simply sitting in the presence of God in silence. Oftentimes that's what happened when, when prophets would encounter the presence of God. They just sort of fell flat on their face. Had nothing to say. And we too can do that. In fact, it's a great idea if you're doing for God is outpacing your being with God. Prayer, though, is also a conversation with God. It's been said that there's basically, and this is totally a, um, you know, a summary that is more complex than this, but basically four kinds of prayers in the Bible. Wow, sorry, thanks, and help. And I think after this morning we could add, wake up. That is lament. It's being honest and crying out. We walk through Nehemiah as a church and we would understand also that there's prayers that happen as you're actually doing the work. And so, you know, Nehemiah worked for justice in his community and he prayed as he worked to fulfill what God has called him to do. Short, single word prayers. What my professor, Brian Chappell, used to call arrow prayers. You know, I kind of think of when you're running with a friend and you're sort of a little bit out of breath. And so all you can do is get out like a one or two words, you know, as you're running and you sort of are carrying on this conversation. But you're trying to sort of distill everything down to one word. Oftentimes prayer can feel like that, especially when you are all busy. I know you are. And you're doing life. You're doing parenting. You're doing your job. You're living life. And, and, and just praying throughout the day like you're jogging. Lord, help. 
I mean, just Lord Jesus. How's that for a good start? Lord Jesus. You're turning your keys off in the car and you're about to walk into your job, which is going to be like this massive tornado of drama. You're like, no thanks. And you're you're looking at LinkedIn and you're trying to figure out where you can work that isn't here. Lord Jesus. You know? Lord Jesus. Help. Again, it's it's an expression. It's an embodiment that you don't have this. You don't have this. And he does. But no matter what, may we be a church that embodies our helplessness. Right? That embodies our helplessness in a do-it-yourself culture. A church that voices lament in a culture and even a church culture that forces you to be shallow in happiness. Would we be a culture that is able to voice our lament And would we express hope in Jesus and his victory and his return in a culture that would today tell you what you see is what you get? Amen. Let's just pray now. Lord, thank you for this moment to step aside from 1 Corinthians and to just focus on the reality of the impossible struggle in front of us. And so in that in that struggle, would we not wrestle it down? Would we not try to grab it with our, with our fists and white-knuckle it into submission? Instead, would we, like the psalmist in Psalm 44, just get on our bellies and cry help and wake up and please? Would we repent of our selfish pride and trying to fix everything ourselves? And Lord, would we see you, Jesus, who even in our sin stays committed to us, who died for the penalty of all of our sins, who was raised and takes our prayers to, the, to our Father's ears. And we pray in His name now. Amen. We have an opportunity to respond to God's Word.